0: Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Len Khodorkovsky is an American story. A guy showed up on our doorstep uh, who wanted to see my
1: parents and my grandparents' apartment, which which happened to be a little bit larger than most apartments in that part of the city. And he just waltzed in, looked at the apartment and left. And Three weeks later, there was a, a note in our door in the summer of 81 that we have three weeks to pick up our stuff and, and, and leave the
0: country. The same story throughout generations of Jewish history. You probably have them in your family. And this one comes from today's Ukraine, then the Soviet Union. He and his family fleeing anti-Semitism towards the end of the 20th century in 1981.
1: I was 11 at the time. And, and essentially get out, get out like and run. <laughs> Three weeks later, we had to just cross the border and figure it out from there. And you know, my grandparents who who have passed on since, they, they reminded me of the thing that really cut them to the bone after we crossed the border. I, I looked at them uh, and I remember asking them, you know, are we homeless now? Because I've never experienced any other life, even though it was, for, for the Western standards, it was certainly not the optimal life of freedom, but for a kid, you know, I, I knew what I knew and I had, a, I had some form of security. I could come home. I had, I had, you know, a couple of friends, but this was the first time in my life that I felt we have literally cut the cord with our past. There was no home. Everybody I knew we left behind other than my parents and my grandparents who just crossed the border with me. and it was it was kind of like diving into the the abyss of uncertainty and the only thing that we had and that my parents had more than i did at that point is faith that once we reached the united states which was you know the golden of medina the the land of freedom
0: that everything will be okay the poignancy of this is of course there'll be another len barely a teenager fleeing Ukraine as we speak. Destination unknown, just heading west. That's kind of what we came, arrived
1: to America with, just those three layers of clothing on our backs. Uh, The few things that my parents were able to sell along the way on the black market just to to have some money so that when we arrived we wouldn't be completely penniless. And just, you know, my parents hoped in America, which, you know, to answer the, 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 long, the, the, it's the long way of answering your question of me being an unlikely guy to find myself in the State Department, to take it from that disembarkment at JFK Airport in New York in, in August of 1981 to me taking an oath of office in December of 2017, you know, that's a trajectory, that's an American story, right?
0: Len comes from approximately the same place as I do, but left 75 years after my own family did. Len was in and around the greatest diplomatic breakthrough of modern times, the Abraham Accords.
1: The Palestinians, sadly, you know, it's that, you know, there's that adage, Palestinians never uh, uh, miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And uh, unfortunately, they missed another opportunity where you had the entire world, including their Arab neighbors and brothers and sisters coming to the table and saying, we are offering you a chance to build a better future for your people. And we're gonna, we're gonna keep working at those other things, but let's try it this way. And of course, they, you know, they, they turned down another opportunity to, to try to improve
0: the lives of Palestinian people. Len served at the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Public Affairs. He was also a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Iran and the Chief Marketing Officer of America's Economic Diplomacy. And it was his last two decades as an advertising executive which led to this extraordinary period. And it's this creative approach which he says gave the Trump administration a greater dynamic to problem-solve than the more conservative, risk-averse, diplomatic column One of the things that I walked away
1: with is we need more marketing people in in politics and in public diplomacy. I think if we had more professionals in that space, we would have fewer wars, to be
0: honest with you. He says the Abraham Accords was the prime example of that. Len's life is one long fact-finding mission. Our conversation is rich in life experience, anecdotes and takeaways. Listen to how he's returning to media to produce a lasting legacy for the Accords with a new TV channel called Yalla. We've got insight into Donald Trump the man, how the media presents a very different image to the reality, something Piers Morgan touched on in his first night interview on Talk TV and Fox Nation. But let's start with why the Republicans are red and the Democrats blue. Unusual colouring from our British perspective, the Tories are blue and Labour, of course, they're red.
1: Well, here, I think in the United States, it's just pure accident, because somebody on some news show probably color-coded the conservative state's red, just not really knowing the uh, the symbolism of it at all.
0: McCarthy would be furious, wouldn't he? (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) You probably saw Piers Morgan on Talk TV, which incidentally is my channel, and is Fox Nation in the United States, interviewed. President Trump, and has created some gray headlines.
1: Yes, the supposed storm out happened.
0: And uh, I don't think they've fallen out at all. So so Trump's team
1: here released their own taping of it. And supposedly, you know, it wasn't a storm out at all. They just said, oh, it was a great interview. Thanks for having me. Or, you know, see you later. And then Trump said, are we done? So just turn off the uh, the camera. So it, it wasn't really as dramatic as peers people made it.
0: Okay. So uh, fake news.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the big controversy <laughs> here, that Trump's team had to release these tapes to to basically show that it wasn't, you know, that he didn't storm off the set at all.
0: And you uh, should know, Len, because uh, you're part of the inner circle.
1: Yeah, well, you, you know, it's been known to happen a number of times, you know, it, uh, in, my, in my experience, where... Um, the news manufactures itself. When you're a guy like Trump, who's dramatic anyway, and then on top of that, you 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 know you compile the the attempts to make him seem crazy. You have to be vigilant about that stuff, it, and it's happened. It's happened like number of times. It, it's happened with Pompeo too, uh, you know, who is not as dramatic, but um, it's all in the editing, right? So uh, it's it's not it's not the interview; it's the editing. Who, who, what what was what's that saying? Where uh, I think it was Stalin, right? Who said, uh, "You know, anybody?" Um, I'm paraphrasing. It, it was about newspaper. It, it, you can have free speech as long as I decide what to print. Uh, you know, something along those lines. And and I think the fake news is really a phenomenon of that as well. You know, the the news actually is decided by the editors who.
0: You know who? Well, you know all about that, so I, I should be nervous. No, no, I wouldn't be nervous at all. I know because Piers touched on it, didn't he, Len, uh, in the interview about? Uh, well, I knew you when you were uh, the Celebrity Apprentice host, which of course Piers Morgan won, and you were very placid and calm. You know, can we have a bit more of that when you come around second time? And he said, Look, you know, I'm the guy who had to fight all of this fake news right from from word go and uh, that's why i uh, i had two jobs i had to run the run the country which i did very successfully and uh, i also had to survive as well with the sort of impeachments as well yeah. you had a point actually i thought donald trump performed rather well actually
1: well so i i remember i met donald trump before he was president uh when i wasn't really affiliated with the campaign i, I was working for Uh, an uh, an advertising agency, and we were working for a third-party client interviewing um, a lot of the presidential candidates at the time. And it it really struck me how polar opposite from his TV persona he was in private. You know, he was actually very gentlemanly and um, accommodating and friendly and, you know, very, very much, you know, disarming 99.9% 99.9% of the public has no idea about any of that. And you know it's it's it just just shows you the power of creating a persona or the image making is so important that it's not the person it's the perception of the person that matters.
0: And, uh, and I, yeah and and this is the thing this is your expertise of course because uh, you're a very modern day phenomenon of politics to create an image and a narrative. And frankly, Joe Biden is creating a series of open goals against the record of Donald Trump. And that narrative really is something that uh, you specialized in during the Trump campaign yourself.
1: Well, yeah, I I think you, you, I come from advertising and advertising products. And what I found out when I uh, actually got into politics, political advertising, is, you know, advertising or marketing a politician or a person is not that much different than marketing an actual product because you have to understand some basics. So the fundamentals still apply. Who's my audience? What am I trying to make them do or, or, or say? Where's my competition? Where do we need to find the, you know, the, the proverbial unique selling proposition? that's going to achieve the client's marketing objectives. All of that still applies with a political candidate. The the trouble is, I think most people in political marketing and advertising or public relations or diplomacy uh, are are, are really not approaching the issue that way. What I found is there are really no marketing people in politics. Mm -hmm. They're all kind of political operatives that riff off of polls, or have experience in running campaigns, perhaps, but not marketing campaigns, and so you know you end up with an approach that, to to, to the general public or to the candidates, voting public, it seems disjointed and seems harsh and rough, and you know it, it's just unpleasant. That's really not the way to sell a product. You know, if if you were to package you know, a national campaign, you wouldn't say we want to make as many people mad at us as possible. But, you know, there may be a tactic which places a particular feature of a product or a candidate in a certain way. But you don't start out trying to alienate as many people as possible. That's a big insight for me. One of the things that I walked away with is we need more marketing people in, in politics and in public diplomacy. I think if we had more professionals in that space, we would have fewer wars, to be honest with you. You know, a lot of those misunderstandings and miscommunication, I mean, even the term miscommunication, all the cleanup that has to be done by politicians and their staffs, probably would be cut down a hell of a lot if you had professionals uh, doing the marketing work to work with these candidates and with with actual politicians. So that's my plug for for my industry, but I really feel like that that it makes a difference. And uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in diplomacy, they're risk averse. You know, they're they're very much kind of trying to go the safest route. The uh, how do we not create a global crisis? And you end up with very uninspiring and unimaginative solutions to to issues. Whereas you know, if you had a you know professional set of hands that understands how this works you would manage the risk portion of being creative and would probably come up with some solutions that would get you out of uh crisis situations you know we 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 talk about russia and china and ukraine and north korea you know some creativity would be good a creative approach would would go a long way
0: well, we'll talk about the Abraham Accords coming up, Len, because I think that was one of the... Uh, I mean, when he when it was called the deal of the century, I mean, it really turned out to be so as well, and maybe for this century and, God willing, into the future as well, because it really has maintained. But the idea of advertising in politics goes back, certainly in this country, the UK, to the late 70s, when Saatchi and Saatchi got involved in Mrs Thatcher's campaign and they came up with the absolute genius of the unemployment line of the Jim Callaghan. I know
1: that one. Can I tell you what it yeah, is? Yeah, please.
0: Labour isn't working. Absolutely right. Ten points to Kodakovsky. Uh Exactly. Labour isn't working. And it was the beginning of a sea change in British politics, which I think still we're, we're living with. I know that we're looking back in history, but it really was that kernel of advertising from the Sarches in the late 70s, which really, really formed a narrative I can tell you in the United
1: States, looking back, there, there are two campaigns that come to mind for me. One, Lyndon Baines Johnson had, a, had an ad. If you recall, uh, it was basically a little girl kind of walking in the field and and uh, picking a daisy, uh, just being happy chi- a happy child, uh, minding her own business. And uh, a big nuclear explosion is superimposed over that image of her picking a daisy and that essentially placed who was running against them um barry uh, goldwater as this uh, you know nuclear fanatic he kind of said to the voters this these are the consequences of voting for the other guy you know the the hothead who's going to cause a nuclear war and then the other uh, campaign which was brilliant was run by reagan when he, his campaign was entirely positive, almost the inverse of the Johnson campaign. And it was all about mourning in America. You know, when Reagan was elected, he was elected after, you know, late 70s. So he was the first president of the 80s. And uh, it was after Carter's so-called malaise years, and there were gasoline lines, and people were feeling really bad about where things were. Uh, we had a big recession. And Reagan comes in, and he—he he, uh, of course he was a Hollywood actor in his previous life, and he comes in with a very positive persona, and runs on a can-do attitude that America is a, you know, shining beacon on the hill, and and it stuck. And then in 1984, his re reelection, when he actually turned the economy around, he ran on "It's Morning in America." So it's it really kind of. Captured the imagination of the public, and you know, gave America its confidence back after the seventies, after the impeachment, after the Vietnam War, after the big recession. the The, the booming economy of the early eighties uh, became synonymous with Reagan's optimism. So you know, it really does. I mean, you, you have to have policy substance. Behind a, a marketing campaign, just like with a product, you can get people to buy something once, but if it's if it's a terrible product, they're not going to buy it again. So in, in politics, this is very similar. You know, perhaps you can entice some people to take a chance on your uh, candidate, but if that candidate is terrible, they're not going to vote for for that candidate again. Yeah. So anyway, I mean. It is an art and a science marketing, but at the end of it, it comes down to substance. So the substance really makes something lasting or it makes something fleeting.
0: Okay, let's talk about your role in the Trump campaign, because you were very close to Mike Pompeo and, of course, Mike Pompeo, a potential candidate for the Republican candidacy in 2024. He was the man going around the world, particularly the Middle East, alongside Jared Kushner, to create the Abraham Accords, which are a startlingly warm piece, a, a relationship which seems to be enduring.
1: Yeah, and, and that was um, also a, a creative approach to diplomacy. Uh, if you recall, it, it was not a given even before 2020 that you you will have anything like this. As you mentioned, the so-called deal of the century, it was it was poo pooed by a lot of people. Now, the the deal of the century, I should rewind because my my work in the State Department spanned a number of issues. One of them was Iran. Now, a lot of the relationships that were built uh, in order for the Abraham Accords to become reality, uh, in my view, were built out of uh, our common approach to Iran. Now, after the Obama years, when uh, the Obama administration uh, uh, made a the Iran deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, with Iran to essentially grant Iran uh, a patient pathway to a nuclear weapon in 15 years, in exchange for uh, some oversight of their nuclear program in the interim to buy some time to do it. So the the Obama administration essentially sacrificed America's traditional relationships in the region with Israel, with the Gulf states, in order to be able to strike a deal with Iran. Uh, When the Trump administration came in, we thought that that was a mistake. And the Iran deal was, as uh, President Trump, when he was running as a candidate, said, you know, one of those top Priorities was to rip up that deal because it, it neither uh, made America or allies safer, nor did it prevent Iran from, from reaching a nuclear weapon. But we essentially found a re- or regained trust among our traditional allies when we instituted that policy of reversing the Obama administration policy. And uh, meeting by meeting, slowly but surely, all of these uh, key people were finding themselves in a room talking about issues that they have in common. They found trust uh, among each other, uh, dealing with an issue of national security. But gradually talking about security issues turned into finding common ground on other issues like uh, economic issues or healthcare issues, certainly during COVID or educational research. So gradually those face-to-face meetings uh, yielded real relationships among decision makers in all of these countries. And I think, um, you know, it just seemed like the moment was right. And seeds of the Abraham Accords were happening throughout because of our continual cooperation against our common threat, which was the Islamic Republic of Iran. And, uh, you know, gradually I think people figured that we're we're stronger together uh, than than separate. And um you know the leaders trusted each other they trusted that what what we said we would do and what what they said they would do and uh, i think you know the the timing and and it's unusual timing you know it's it's in the presidential campaign year for the united states it's coming down the pike general election this is not when big things traditionally happen but but i think you know enough seeds were planted in the years that preceded that uh, that that i think everyone involved decided that we better seize this moment because, you know, we don't know when in history it's going to come again. And, you know, all of the trivial differences that, you know, we still have became less important than casting uh, the mold for the next generation, which would be beneficial for, for all of us. So I think the timing was right. The trust was built And trust is another component that's important in in selling a product. You know, people have to trust that what they buy is going to work. It's going to deliver on their expectations or hopefully supersede their expectations. So, you know, it's it's one hand to have a a White House uh, press conference. It's another thing for people to actually get into relationships like we're seeing right now across the region, where you have economic collaboration, you have you know, collaboration and, and healthcare or, or uh, academic research, uh, and it's sticking. And, uh, and I, think it, I, th- I think it's a great sign, which is going to outlast any political obstacle that may be thrown in
0: its way there are some key things here um despite the complexity of cutting through to get a deal the actual abraham accords document is not very long which is a good sign and the fundamentals behind this very short and very uh uh, concise document is the fact that the gulf arabs never declared war on israel you wonder actually whether morocco should have signed it in the 70s anyway given that the relationship culturally with Israel is unbelievably deep. There are more Moroccan Jews than any other kind of Jew of Moroccan descent in uh, in Israel. Even in this home uh, that I live in, uh, my children are of Moroccan descent. My wife is Moroccan. And uh, well, even
1: even in my home, my wife is half Moroccan.
0: There we go. There we go. Shikoyah the Ashkenazi when the Safadim meet. In that's the right. The century. This is great news. This is even even I am uh, partly Ukrainian as well, then So uh, you know, maybe, oh. maybe our children are cousins. You know, that's probably probably the case. It's um, right
1: on. Of course. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's worlds worlds colliding. I don't yeah, know. Indeed. It could be dangerous. <laughs>
0: I tell you though something about the abraham accords which makes me feel slightly uncomfortable is that the emiratis in particular have a stick to beat israel with and in my first ever discussion about the abraham accords just weeks after the deal was signed it was with his excellency Mansour abul hull the ambassador to the united kingdom He reminded us that the deal with the palestinians had to be settled with the israelis and i'm not entirely sure in my heart of hearts whether the emiratis truly care about a national cause over a religious one but let's keep it in there to as a stick to beat the israelis with you know that's the territorial and political issue that lies on top of those believers in the quran this is the the slight difficulty that i have between the palestinian secular national fight of delegitimizing zionism and the quranic torah relationship that the jews and the muslims have which is the basis of the abraham accords in terms of peace well, uh, I'm, I'm not a
1: Quran expert, uh, and I wouldn't even call myself a Torah expert. Uh, but uh, what, I, what I do know is that I would rather deal with these issues under the current circumstances than uh, with, with antagonistic uh, posture. The more we collaborate on issues that we can agree on, uh, the more we'll, in my view, we'll figure out a way to address the issues that we disagree about. Um, So I I think reasonable people can can come to some sort of accommodations on various things. And it's not like, you know, we're coming out of the blue into this relationship. We've had a, you know, UAE has existed for 50 years and uh, certainly other countries longer. uh, And um, the issue of Palestinians has always been there. As a matter of fact, it's, you know, as you know, it's been, the the issue that's divided, uh, you know, Israelis from the rest of the neighborhood. And the whole reason, well, not the whole, but a big reason why you're seeing a convergence of Abrahamic brothers and sisters is because I think the new generation of Gulf Arab leaders, like MBZ, MBS, uh, leaders in Bahrain, in Morocco, um, I I think what they're recognizing is that yes, we, you know, we have disagreements and, but at the same time, we can't allow the Palestinian issue to hijack our national interest. And we've invested from their point of view uh, decades into trying to use it as leverage uh, against the Jewish state of Israel. And it's produced, it hasn't hasn't improved the lives of of their citizens. You know, Israel is here to stay. They realize that. They know that. They were talking that way even before the agreements privately. So in, in, in many ways, the Abraham Accords are just recognition of reality to them. And the, the, the new generation of Arab leaders are, are have decided, have made a strategic decision that they're going to try and solve those issues that they care about, that their parents cared about in a different way. And that's also a creative approach to problem solving, you know. Uh, e- even the the deal of the century concept, which is, we you know, we didn't call it the deal of the century, the press called it the deal of the century. But the 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 creative approach there uh, toward the Palestinians was, you know, what there's there there are key differences in what we're trying to achieve with the deal. Now up until now, we've tried to come up with a political solution to, uh, to borders, to, you know, the right of return issue, to the Jerusalem issue. Maybe we should start backwards. Maybe we should start with, let's start by improving the lives of Palestinians. Let's make uh, them economically more prosperous. Let's give them a glimpse of what, you know, a, a more positive future could look like for their children. And out of that, We'll find a solution to the more complicated political issues. The Palestinians, sadly, you know, it's that, you know, there's that adage, uh, Palestinians never uh, uh, miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And uh, unfortunately, they missed another opportunity where you had the entire world, including their Arab neighbors and brothers and sisters, coming to the table and saying, we are offering you a chance to build a better future for your people, and we'll, we're going we're to keep working at those other things. But let's try it this way. And of course, they, you know, they they turned down another opportunity to to try to improve the lives of Palestinian people. But on the other hand, the Gulf Arab leaders took that opportunity to normalize relations, to build a better economic situation that benefits their people and deal with the complicated issues as we figure it out along the way. Because it's a lot easier when you're talking. It's a lot harder when you're not talking. So I don't know if there's a Palestinian version of MBS or MBZ or or King Mohammed or, you know, I don't know. Hopefully there is for the sake of Palestinian people, because it'll be a, a, a shame for, for the next generation of Palestinians to end up in the same place uh, as as their predecessors. It's just a shame because it doesn't benefit them, and it certainly doesn't benefit Israel or the region itself. Indeed. So I want to be optimistic, but uh, I, I haven't seen the glimpse of that quite yet.
0: I've just done a podcast on finding Abraham Malcolm Green, another man from advertising, a British a uh, film producer who again came from your sphere and has made a beautiful movie about the leaders of tomorrow an assortment of bahrainis emiratis israelis all coming together to visit israel for the first time and they talk about peace in uh, well i can only sort of surmise it in a ringo star kind of way peace and love uh finding peace within your soul um, and that if you're not in conflict in yourself, therefore you won't be in conflict around uh, the rest of the world. And it's it's a lovely idea from an artistic and creative point of view. I wish there were Palestinians on that trip, actually, Johnny. I really do. for one side or the other. And there was no outreach hand from the Israeli side, nor from the other side. But eventually I'd love to do that because then... Then you go, right, now we're on the way. But again, uh, on both sides of it, it excluded the Palestinians. And uh, again, it is a a terrible uh, reality, a terrible tragedy that uh, they feel or they want to be excluded from such a positive uh, process. Um, Len, let's talk about your actual practical involvement in the Abraham Accords because it was under the wing of Mike Pompeo, that you shuttled around the world yourself in pursuit of Middle East peace?
1: Well, look, I, I, I'm certainly not in a category of uh, Jared Kushner or Jason Greenblatt or uh, Avi Barkowitz or Ambassador Friedman. Uh, I, I was the behind the scenes guy, and I did what I could to uh, to help with the skill set that I had which is trying to figure out what people cared about and how we can best deliver results that people cared about. And from working on the Iran portfolio, certainly in finding common ground around dealing with that issue, which I found to be a fundamental issue when it came to making peace. Uh, And and I think you're, you're seeing the opposite approach these days where the Biden administration has reverted in a lot of ways to the Obama policy on Iran. And you're seeing the fraying of the relations between the United States and the Saudis and the Emiratis. And, um,
0: you know, I, I think
1: it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate, but but that was, that was really my role, you know, to put my advertising brain to work and figure out how to reach the people on the ground and uh, add to, you know, whatever I could in terms of events like the Peace to Prosperity Summit in Bahrain and coming up with, you know, really, I just, I just raised my hand and said, how can I help? I, I found that, uh, you know, there, that life has prepared me in a certain way to be valuable at a certain point in time. You know, I wasn't predestined to work for Mike Pompeo at the State Department. I, I'm an advertising guy, as you said you know, I I wasn't in politics. I did not, I was not a diplomat. I I came into the State Department because at a certain point in my career, I ended up working on uh, the advertising campaign of Donald Trump, the candidate, and which led me to eventually work on uh, the State Department's digital strategy portfolio, which, you know, step by step, you know, you end up where, where life puts you or where God puts you. You try and put your all God-given talents and skills to work in whatever situation you're in. The one thing I think people don't appreciate is, you know, politicians or diplomats um, are, are not really any smarter than the general public. What, what ends up happening is uh, events come at you so, so fast. That, that is what happened from my perspective in government. But you figure out if you, if you put the right people in place... Um, that the right people figure out how to respond to unusual circumstances. You know, God has given all of us skills and talents and a brain uh, to to put towards solving all sorts of things. Whether it's uh, you know solving um, you know the crisis at home of who's going to make sure that uh, one kid is brought to this practice or or who's going to wash the dishes and you know, the consequences of not washing them to solving, you know, geopolitical issues. It's really kind of like the same tools that, that you use to solve both. So I don't know. I, I found that, you know, the right people having, having the right judgment can do magical things. The, the wrong people with bad judgment are going to get us in trouble. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's luck. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's leadership and luck. You know, every administration is going to find itself in circumstances that could end up yielding positive results and and creating positive momentum or or set us back and create problems. I defer to God's wisdom in gifting all of us with the equipment. To be able to figure out how to make the right decisions so um i don't know i'm I, i'm fortunate to to have been at the right place at the right time and surrounded by the right people and the right leadership that i think you know ended up yielding positive momentum at least in that realm
0: well your, yours is a, a truly american story because not only are you not an insider you weren't even born in the united states you are from ukraine despite your north american accent and obviously in childhood you had a ukrainian accent Uh, you were born in another country and you have been able in an extraordinarily flat society which america remains i think to be able to contribute so much so fast to american society just tell us about your ukrainian background len
1: well uh it started long ago in <laughs> a, uh, a little southwestern city of Chernivets, uh, or chernitsi in Ukrainian. Uh, it's in, in southwestern Ukraine near the Romanian border. Uh, and, um, you know, my grandparents, uh, ha, you know, lived in that part of the world their whole life, but they spoke four languages because that little piece of real estate exchanged hands four different times, you know, they were born in, under the Austro-Hungarian empire and then the Germans took it over and then the Russians kicked them out and, and the Romanians ruled over it for a period of time. So they, uh, which is in, in a lot of ways, it's a story of Jews in that part of the region. So, but, but at home, my grandparents spoke Yiddish. Uh, we, we all, you know, my parents and I and my grandparents on my mother's side all lived together in one apartment and my grandparents spoke Yiddish at home. At this point, I, I, unfortunately, I didn't pick up enough of it. I just picked up enough to be dangerous, you know, to sound smart. And, um, uh, you know, I wish I picked up more. Um, but anyway, so I, I grew up under an, in the Soviet Union under the communist regime. And, uh, of course, my official paperwork, you know, had, uh, had my ethnicity printed right there. I was a Jew. That doesn't matter that I was, you know, Born in Ukraine or, or Russia or Belarus or Kazakhstan, like like my friends uh, in the classroom or, or out of school, you know, their paperwork, if they were born in Ukraine, it said Ukrainian, regardless of their, you know, ethnicity. My paperwork said Jew. So I always knew that there was, you know, I had like uh, the scarlet letter on me uh, in some way. I wasn't really sure why or you know, why I felt like a second-class citizen or why my parents couldn't do one thing or another, or why my, my dad was demoted or why my mom couldn't go to a certain school. Uh, you know, it's just, it was a way of life. Or why even when my grandfather took me on a walk past an old synagogue, why he, he warned me that I should never go there mm-hmm. because KGB was taking down Names of everyone entering that that uh, synagogue. You only had old people in there. You didn't have young people. So, my, my experience with Judaism when I was growing up was really that my grandparents somehow a couple of times a year would once they would remind me that oh today today we can't eat. So it was Yom Kippur, and it was you know I didn't even know about Yom Kippur, but I just knew that there was one day a year when when we when my parents and my grandparents fasted. Uh, and then another day a year when they ended up smuggling to me not very tasty piece of cardboard looking specimen that we all had to eat. Matzah, of course. And that that not Manischevits
0: of anything then. Actually, matzah, no, I don't, I don't think not, it was you're Manischewitz. Not, no. You're not talking about Hebrew national anything. anything from No,
1: me. I don't think it was egg matzah or chocolate matzah or any of the no. Western permutations of it. No. Yeah, you know, it, it, but, but, but I'll tell you what it was just as appetizing in the old Soviet Union as it is today. Not a big <laughs> changes fan. changes
0: in the free world.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of Maltzah. But anyway, so I grew up in Soviet Union and uh, at some point now my parents decided you know th- there was no future for me as their, as their child and my grandparents didn't see a future for me in the Soviet Union. And uh, they, they decided they're going to put in the paperwork to try and leave. And once you do that, of course, once you serve notice to the Soviet authorities that, you know, you're not on board with their uh, vision of, of, uh, uh, of, of life, um, then you become a persona non grata even more so than you were before as a Jew. And so, you know, for four years, my parents were, you know, refused next quote unquote, and they were denied the ability to leave. They, uh, my dad was uh, demoted. Um, and, um, you know, uh, certainly you become a a less desirable part of of the society there. Uh, And one day, to be honest with you, we we were just lucky. Again, luck plays so much and so much uh, in in what we do. Um, A guy showed up on our doorstep uh, who wanted to see my parents and my grandparents' apartment, which, which happened to be a little bit larger than most apartments in that part of the city. And he just waltzed in, looked at the apartment and left. And three weeks later, there was a, a note in our door in the summer of 81 that we have three weeks to pick up our stuff and 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 leave the country. Turned out he was the, the new KGB chief in town. And he wanted my grandparents' apartment. And so he basically decided that um, we're, they're going to, you know, they're going to let us leave. And we had three weeks to figure out. You know what? What we can bring, and of course, we couldn't bring more than a certain amount. You can only take out a certain amount of stuff. So in a in the summer of 1981, I remember everybody was wearing three layers of clothing. You know, taking any valuables that we could bring with us. You know, packing up any essentials. I had to part with my my little dog. We had to leave him with the neighbors. I was 11 at the time, and and essentially get out, get out, like and run. <laughs> Three weeks later, we had to just cross the border and figure it out from there. And, you know, my grandparents who, who have passed on since, they, they reminded me of the thing that really cut them to the bone after we crossed the border. I, I looked at them uh, and I remember asking them, are we homeless now? Because I've never experienced any other life, even though it was, For for the Western standards, it was certainly not the optimal life of freedom. But for a kid, you know, I I knew what I knew, and I had a I had some form of security. I could come home. I had, I had you know a couple of friends, but this was the first time in my life that I felt we have literally cut the cord with our past. There was no home. Everybody I knew we left behind, other than my parents and my grandparents, who just crossed the border with me. And it was, it was kind of like diving into uh, the abyss of uncertainty. And the only thing that we had and that my parents had more than I did is faith that once we reached the United States, which was you know, the golden of Medina, the, the land of freedom, that everything will be okay. That's kind of what we came arrived to America with, just those three layers of clothing on our backs uh, the few things that my parents were able to sell along the way on the black market just to, to have some money so that we we arrived, we wouldn't be completely penniless. And just, you know, my parents' hope in America, which, you know, to answer the the, the long, the, the, it's the long way of answering your question of me being an unlikely guy to find myself in the State Department, to take it from that disembarkment at JFK Airport in New York and in August of 1981 to me taking an oath of office in December of 2017, you know, that's a trajectory. That's an American story, right? Like who I couldn't have told you that my parents couldn't have told you that, you know, it's, you you can't, you can't take that for granted. You just kind of have to live your life and you know, do, do what you believe is the right thing. And, you know, God puts you in a place that, uh, where you're meant to be and I
0: hope you know that's that's kind of that's true for others as well. It's a wonderful Jewish story and it's one I've heard before to hear it so contemporaneously in 1981 to 2017 is wonderful because in my family it's 1939 and in my father's family it's in 1865 so to hear it You know a century and a half later century and a quarter later is is truly is truly wonderful i'm going to ask you the same question that was asked of me because of my ukrainian background because again my grandfather uh, was born in what is now ukraine but was poland then was a bit of russia and he became an austro-hungarian and went to vienna so he was a refugee twice Uh, in his life and came to England and uh, built a British version of the American dream here. And uh, here I am a couple of generations later. I was asked by the uh, presenter on talk radio whether I had a connection with Ukraine, a sympathy. And of course, I don't. I have no family there. Uh, The ones that escaped to Vienna um, Escaped and built their new lives in Vienna before building their new lives in the United Kingdom. Some, are, of course, are in the United States, in Canada, in Israel. You know the story, uh, the same as probably your family too. Uh, but uh, for you, it's slightly more raw. Do you have a relationship, an emotional relationship with Zelensky, with Ukraine? Do you still have family there of some kind, distant cousins, etc.?
1: My personal emotional relationship with Ukraine is complicated because. I actually wrote an op-ed in Jerusalem Post about it, which is, you know, my own conflict with the conflict in Ukraine, which is as a Jew, when you're growing, you know, when you grew up in Ukraine or the Soviet Union or in that part of the world, it's, it's not, you're, you're not a Ukrainian first, you're a Jew first. Not because you don't have any patriotic feelings toward your home country, but because you you were made to feel different you were made to feel like an outsider. That, that was true when I was growing up, that, you know, I knew that I was different than my neighbors or my, my um, schoolmates. So, and of course there's a long history of persecution of Jews in Ukraine and that part of the world, the pogroms, uh, 300 years worth of you know, mass atrocities targeting Jews. It's very difficult for me as a Jew to have exactly, you know, uh, the, the same sympathy for, you know, what, what, what I recall as being a very anti-Semitic uh, environment. And in some ways, you know, when Russia attacked Ukraine, you know, one of the thoughts, and I, I don't know if I should be embarrassed to say this, but it's just, you know, naturally, my natural response was, well, you know, um, should I care if one anti-Semite tries to attack another anti-Semite? Now, that's one part of me, but there's another part of me, which is the part of me that respects freedom and that respects, uh, you know, sovereignty of nations that, that uh, believes that uh, people should live and let, you know, that you should live and let live and no one should be forced against their will to s- subject themselves to anything they don't want to be subjected to. So from that perspective, I was in some ways outraged that this can still happen in 21st century. You know, this 20th century style war, the, br- the brutal 20th century warfare I thought was behind us, uh, And the future warfare is going to be all technical and economic and, and uh, diplomatic and, you know, not so much kind of brute force. So I was offended as somebody who, cares about freedom and people's ability to live free. But I did have that, you know, personal conflict of, yes, I know they were attacked and that's not right. Should I like them? It it was a very, very kind of existential struggle that I had to kind of wrestle with. And I'm sure many people like me have had similar thoughts uh, come across their mind. I know it's like, you know, Ukraine of today is not the Ukraine of when I left or, of 300 years ago um you know one thing that i lean toward is that you know there was a pew research survey a couple of years ago that actually surveyed uh, eastern and central european countries on their attitudes toward jews and it turned out at least according to that survey that ukraine was the least anti-semitic of the countries around them today and of course you know given that there's a jewish president of ukraine that's probably uh symptomatic of those attitudes. Um, so, you know, I can't say that the same preconceived notions hold true today that they did, you know, 40 years when I left. But still, you know, that was my thinking. That's that's what that's the experience that I had. Uh, I do have cousins still there. Um, my dad's cousin, who still lives in Ukraine with her family. They, are, they were based in Kiev. And uh, since the war started, they've had to evacuate and are now in a different city uh, because Kiev was just too dangerous for civilians. There is one member of the family who is, a, you know, a male of fighting age. Uh, so, you know, the family decided to stay there uh, because he couldn't leave with them. The, 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 you know, my dad's cousin, who's in her 70s and, her couple of daughters and a the granddaughter, they probably could have and you know, still could make it out if they, if they decided to do that, but they decided to stay along with my male cousin because he can't leave. Um, so I do, I do have some news and I do, we do get some news from, from Ukraine these days. This, the situation seems very different in different parts of Ukraine. Uh, where my cousins are today, they are not seeing the – they're hearing the, the uh, alarms and they're, they have to run to the bomb shelter from time to time, but uh, they, they still perform you – know, they still work. They still do you know, work virtually, uh, and uh, they're, they're not reporting any food shortages or anything like that where they are, whereas certainly in other parts of Ukraine – Situation is drastically different, especially in the east. You're seeing images of Mariupol and Kharkiv—you um, know, big cities that are completely destroyed. You know, analogous to Beirut of the '70s, really. And uh, you know, do I believe that Ukrainians have a right to defend themselves? Of course. You know, if somebody invades your home, you have a right to defend yourself. Uh, you know, we'll figure out what people inside that home feel or think or say, you know, a different day. First, we have to get the invader out of the house uh, and deal with those other issues later. Now, not to say that Putin or his ilk have any more fondness for, for Jews, um, You know, there's certainly plenty of anti-Semites in Russia as well, uh, but there are also, you know, many good people. And I, I think, you know, as a grown up, I try and take a sober view of humanity And I know people are complicated and it's not always what you hear. You know, you have to spend some time and invest in relationships in order to really uh, understand what other people are thinking or feeling, even from a marketing perspective, in order to be to be able to come up with a sub solution that makes
0: sense for both parties. And uh, let me ask you about your latest project, which is to engage with the Arab world where we're going to watch Yala uh, tell us more about that project, Len. Well, this is this
1: is a project of absolute labor of love. It stems from my experience on working on the Abraham Accords and traveling the region. While I was at the State Department, I I did have a chance to visit a significant number of countries in the region, and I met a lot of people, and I I've grown to love a lot of the traditions and people, and and I I thought that the Abraham Accords. Uh, became a game changer in the region and have opened the possibilities to so many new things that the new generation of Arab leaders did not have before the Abraham Accords. And so I decided after I left government that I I want to keep contributing toward changing of the paradigm in the Middle East. You know, when I entered government, Middle East was known as the most combustible, the most dangerous neighborhood in the world. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it, it's still dangerous, you know, because of actors like uh, the Iranian regime or Hezbollah or Hamas or, you know, ISIS certainly, uh, but, but also, there's a well of goodwill in that region. And we're seeing a lot of those people who, are, are, who want to turn the page toward, uh, toward something more positive and more hopeful for their children are taking root. And so, from my perspective, outside of government, I, I try to figure out what's the best way that I can contribute to uh, enhancing those feelings and opening up possibilities for the Arab youth. You know, I want someone of the next generation of, uh, of Arab youth in Morocco or Egypt or Kuwait or Oman to be able to feel like they can go to space, they can invent. You know, the next internet. And I think it's possible. So I teamed up with a, a Syrian born journalist, Haby Buzo, who herself was born in Damascus and who covered the State Department for, uh, for an Arabic uh, network when I was there. So we knew each other from those days. And we happened to want the same thing a Jew from Eastern Europe and someone of a Muslim background from Damascus, Syria, turned out to want the same thing, which is very indicative of what I found in the region. So we decided, you know, we're gonna put our talents to work here. She as a news uh, presenter, a news reporter, a journalist, and me as a marketing guy, let's provide a platform to the next generation of Arabic youth uh, in the region to be able to not just uh, express their feelings, but to showcase all the positive developments that are ha- happening in the region, so that someone can actually be inspired to achieve what people are already achieving on the ground today. We were, for example, we were fortunate to interview the first Emirati astronaut Hazza Al Mansouri. Two,
0: one.
1: The dream turned into reality. Hazza Al Mansouri, first Emirati astronaut <laughs> the ويقوم باجراء اختبارات
0: علميه في الفضاء
1: معكم رائد الفضاء الاماراتي هزاع المنصوري من محطه الفضاء الدوليه
0: لتعرفوا اكثر عن مسيره وانجازات هزاع المنصوري تابعوا
1: هذه الحلقه من برنامج يلا هي an opportunity arose at some point for him to be able to join the space program in the Emirates. And, and, and that is indicative of the kinds of opportunities that are opening up. We also profiled a Saudi female race car driver. Now, up until a few years ago, you know, women weren't even allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. And now we have women in Saudi Arabia competing on the Formula One circuit. So all of these things are the kinds of good news profiles that we want to showcase and inspire others in the region to to dream bigger to to show them the possibilities uh and to not just harp on the past but to focus on the future you know because we the two of us feel that the children of abraham have so much more in common that they do in um in, in in that they do different that that uh, there's a lot for us to build on, and we'll, we're going to let others to focus on the bad news and the conflict and controversy. We're going to we're, we're we're all about hope, future, and possibilities, and peace, of course. Uh, and, that, and that's so. We we started this show called Yella, and um, right now it's uh, it's all digital. Uh, you you can find us across social media uh, at at Watch Yella, and uh, at WatchYella.com. And uh, we're, we're hoping to eventually grow bigger, uh, reach a much bigger audience, and uh, hopefully we'll find a home somewhere in the region that will uh, that will allow us to tell our story to the to even bigger public.
0: Len, uh, this has been a, a terrific conversation and we've covered a whole host of uh, issues, decades, even centuries, cultures, TV, marketing, politics. It's been a brilliant conversation, Then thank you very much for your time and joining me on Johnny Eagle's Jewish State.
1: Thanks so much for having me, John. Really a pleasure. Let's do it again.
0: We will do it again. Now, if you think I add value to what's out there and you enjoy my podcasts, your generosity is a welcome thumbs up. It really, really is. Make a donation at jewishstate.co.uk by clicking on the PayPal icon going to patreon.com slash johnny gould or even you can buy me a coffee a sort of virtual one i think ko fi.com slash johnny gould that's ko fi.com slash johnny gould and thank you so much tell your friends about johnny gould's jewish state subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts